weeks ago, we had introduced this sermon uh, series called Majoring on the Minor Prophets. And so today we're looking at Jonah chapter 1, and we're reading verses 1 to 3, so please hear now the reading of God's holy word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, pray with me. Oh Lord, we are revisiting a text that is so familiar. Many of us may have grown up in the church having heard about this. Lord, even if we didn't grow up in the church, we've heard about this incident, this account of Jonah and the great fish. But Father, as we come to your word, we pray for your Holy Spirit to give us a a new insight. Um, Father, if we think that we're already familiar with this story, God, I pray that you would give to us humility so that we could understand it and see it and apply it into our lives in new ways. Father, if this is the first time we're hearing this, I pray that through it you would speak powerfully to us, that you would teach us um, many things about yourself and of your character and of your goodness. Father, for those who have had hard and difficult weeks, I pray that this passage would help us to find our rest in you and to find a comfort in you. For those of us who have had great weeks, peaceful, relaxing, comforting weeks, We pray that this passage would direct us to give you all thanksgiving. So in all these ways, speak to us, because we know your word addresses us, whoever we are and however we come to you. We bless you, O Lord, in this time. We pray and ask for your guidance by your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Jonah is not to be confused, as it so often is, to be a book about a man who gets swallowed by a great fish. And I think that's so often the point that people think Jonah is about. Whether they think it's uh, a miracle or a myth, that seems to get all of the attention when it comes to the book of Jonah. But when we put all of our attention and we focus on that fact, whether it was scientifically possible, whether it's accurate, I think what we do is we actually miss what the author is trying to do because the author only spends a few verses on the fish incident. The point of Jonah is that God is a God of extravagant grace. That's the point of the book. And so to miss that simple point is to miss the point of the story. It's not about a great fish. It's not about a great storm. It's about a great act of deliverance through a greater act of grace. Well, what is grace? I like this definition from Paul Zoll. He writes this, Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is loving. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. The question is, who wouldn't want grace like this? It's not difficult to convince a person that they should want this kind of grace. This kind of grace is attractive. It's beautiful. That's not what's difficult. You know what is difficult? Convincing someone to give another person grace. That's what's hard. 
We all want to receive grace. It's free. It's for you. You're unlovable, but God loves you. Yes, I love to receive grace, but we don't want to give grace. Why? Because it's costly to us. That's the thing about grace. It's free to those who receive, but it's so costly to the one who gives it. So then if that's true, if grace is free to the one who receives, but costly to the one who gives, then think about this. When we talk about God being a God of grace, that God demands that we only relate to him by grace, what is it saying? It's saying God is willing to be in a relationship with you, to pursue you, to know you, to love you, even when it is at great cost to himself. That's an astounding thing to think. The fact that God said, it's not about anything that you bring to me, but everything I supply to you. It shows us that the way God enters into a relationship comes at a great expense to himself. And that great expense, if we are Christians, we know what that great expense is. That great expense is Jesus Christ. It's his own son who he has given to die in your place, to wash you of your sins, to make you presentable and acceptable to him. That was the price that God paid, the cost that he paid to come after you. Now that's great to hear. God paid this great sacrifice, the cost of his son to come after you. But not just you. Even your worst enemies, even the worst people you know, even the least deserving people, even the most unqualified people, that God paid the same cost for you as he did for them. So we got to understand this. Sometimes we think that God had to pay full price, the full price of grace to redeem those murderers and sex offenders and racists and terrorists. God had to pay a full cost of grace to get them. And then he paid a, a kind of discounted price for those who, you know, I mean, they have some addictions. They have a potty mouth. They, uh, you know, maybe you just have some anger problems. And that he paid a smaller uh, price of grace for them. And then, and then he paid, he got you guys, the good, moral, decent people. He got you on the ultra clearance sale. He didn't have to pay, he didn't have to ex- extend much grace to you. And that's the way we think. Those people, those bad people, they need more grace. Good people like me, we need little. But here's the thing. God's grace doesn't come in gradations as if some people need a stronger dose of his grace and some people need a less strong dose of his grace. Instead, the grace that we need from Jesus, the grace that we need from God is one and the same because we're all equally in need of it. Just like none of you can look at the other person person next to you, left and right, and, and judge them and say, look at that person. That person needs more oxygen than, than I do. Well, no one would boast in such a thing. We all equally need it. In the same way, how could any of us as Christians who've experienced God's grace look at another person and go, that person needs more grace than me, or the grace we need is different? You see, there's a major gospel truth that we learn from this minor prophet Jonah, and that's this. God's grace is for all people. Yes, even the worst people, because we all don't deserve it. God's grace is for all people. Yes, even the worst person you can think of, because we all equally don't deserve it. As we look at this passage, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to ask three questions, and this is more, they're less points, more just three questions to sort of structure our outline today. And the questions are these. What's going on in this passage? 
How does it give gospel hope, and what does it mean for you? So the first question is this, what's going on in this passage? Well, look with me. It's a very short passage that we're considering, but look with me at verse 1. It begins like this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Well, who is Jonah? The Bible doesn't talk much about him, except for there's a part in 2 Kings chapter 14 that mentions this prophet Jonah. It says that Jonah was a prophet during the reign of King Jeroboam II. Now, that may not mean anything to you, but what it at least does is this. It gives us a historical context. Jeroboam II reigned during the 8th century, and so we know when we read this about Jonah, okay, Jonah is placed in the 8th century, and that's important for this reason. It's going to give you a little bit about the background of Nineveh and about the Assyrians. Because God comes to Jonah, and he says to Jonah, I got a job for you. I got a task for you. And what's that task? Verse 2. Arise, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, here's what you need to know about Nineveh to make sense of the story. Nineveh is described here as a great city, and it really was a great city. It was a great city because it was a royal city that belonged to the Assyrian Empire. And in the 8th century BCE, the Assyrian Empire was the major world power. But the Assyrians were great enemies against Israel. You see, the Assyrians, they had invaded the northern kingdom, and they had absolutely destroyed it. They killed the people, and they took many out of their land, and they raped the women. None of this was diplomatic and peaceful. The Assyrian army was known for being absolutely ruthless and violent. In fact, when they did archaeological digs of the Assyrian sites, what they found were these tablets of, 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 of uh, scenes depicted, and they were often uh, these just horrible and sadistic scenes of torture during times of war. You had prisoners lined up chained and people in the back whipping them. You had uh, spikes and, and bodies placed through the spikes and splayed open. Very disturbing stuff. And so when the Israelites heard Nineveh, they were repulsed by its mention. They hated Nineveh. Their stomachs turned at the sound of Nineveh. And so it's important that God is saying to Jonah, go to this group of people. Go to Nineveh. Now, on first glance, Jonah has an interesting reaction. It says that he rose and he fled. But if Jonah is an Israelite and he hates Nineveh, why wouldn't he want to take this message? Because this is a negative message, isn't it? God's saying, call out against them. Their evil has come and I'm going to judge them. This is a bad message. And so if Jonah really hated the Ninevites, wouldn't he, wouldn't he be really excited? Oh, I'm going to go and I'm gonna, I'm, I get to tell them. Listen, don't you know your evil has come up before God like a stench? You guys are in trouble. Why isn't Jonah more happy? It's kind of like when two siblings are fighting, a younger and an older one. The older one is bullying the younger one. And then all of a sudden, dad walks in. And that little one, he can take the beating. He could take the torture. Why? Because he'll sadistically smile and say, dad's coming. You're so going to get it. You're going to get it. Get what? I don't know, the belt? <laughs> You're going to get something. Why? Because dad's coming. A little sadistic kind of, almost evil kind of joy that we can sometimes have. Jonah could go to, his, go to the Assyrian Empire, can go to Nineveh and say, 
God knows you're evil. God's coming. And yet he doesn't. Jonah gets up and he runs away. Verse 3 says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now it's really interesting here because God says what he says, Arise and go to Nineveh. And Jonah half obeys. What does it say? But Jonah arose to flee. (laughs) He didn't go to Nineveh. He went to Tarshish. Now, we don't know where Tarshish is, but that's not the important part. The important place is that Tarshish is on the Mediterranean side, west. Nineveh was east. Tarshish is west. The point is simply Jonah went the other way. God told him to go left. Jonah went right. Now, why does he run away from this mission? And here's the important thing. This is why. Jonah knew that bringing a message of judgment to Nineveh was more hopeful than it was condemning. He knew that a message of warning and judgment was actually more hopeful than it was condemning. Because consider the whole story. If you're not familiar with it, let me summarize it. Jonah receives a call. He runs away. He's on a boat. He gets thrown over sea because God's in the storm. He's in the sea, but God saves him by sending a great fish to swallow him. He's in the belly of of this great fish for three days and three nights. He gets spit back up into dry land. And then what? He ends up in Nineveh anyway, right? He took the long way. He took the detour to get to Nineveh. He gets to Nineveh, And it says that, again, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and Jonah gave the same message. Your sin has come up before God. Something really interesting happens. He doesn't woo them to Jesus Christ. He doesn't woo them by God's grace. He says, God's judgment is upon you. And something really interesting happens, because in chapter 3, verse 5, this is what it says. And the people of Nineveh believed God. It's incredible. They're told not about grace, not about, they're told about their sin. And these people just start repenting and turning to God. I mean, this, this must have been the easiest group of people to ever evangelize to. If only our cities were more like Nineveh. Now, it's surprising to us, wow, Jonah just preached judgment and they believed, but it wasn't surprising to Jonah. It's surprising to us, but not to him. Why? Because in chapter 4, Jonah preaches judgment. Lots of people believe that even the king starts believing they repent. And Jonah is so angry. And it says in chapter 4, Jonah is complaining of God, and he says, That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah knew that warning them of impending doom and destruction would actually lead them to repent and to be saved because even the warning is a gracious message. Now, it's hard for us to understand that. How is warning a gracious message? Well, let me give you um, an example that I think fits our context. Sometimes I watch the news, and there are so many unredeeming things about humanity, particularly if you've seen the videos to Black Friday shopping behavior. It's just, you're just like, wow, for a TV, did you see the one where they rush in and the little girl is holding a box and that woman comes and just takes it right out of her head? It's so sad, and I just want to give up on humanity sometimes. But every once in a while, God reminds me, you know, things are going to be okay. Here's how. I'm driving down a road. It's heavily forested, lots of trees. You know, it's autumn. Leaves are turning color. Speed limit's 40, but I'm comfortably going 50 maybe 55, 
And I'm driving down the road, had some turns, and all of a sudden I see another car coming. Maybe you've experienced me like there's another car is coming. And when they're within a good distance, they flash their lights twice. Now it's the middle of the day, and I first think maybe my lights are off, but my lights don't need to be on. Why did he flash my lights? And then it hits me. And this is when my faith in humanity is restored. If you know what I'm talking about, you know, you, you know exactly this feeling. What is he doing? He's warning me. There's a police vehicle hiding a little, while, a little ways down the road. Slow down because you don't want to get a ticket. And in those moments, I just feel, Lord, everything will be okay. <laughs> you know, the world is not so bad after all. Now, what is this guy doing? He's, he's warning me. But he doesn't need to warn me. He doesn't owe me anything. But that warning, what does that warning do? It makes me slow down, and it saves me from getting a ticket. It spares me from getting pulled over. So, in fact, the warning is gracious. You didn't deserve that. So, in the same way, Jonah knew that the warning of God's judgment was actually a message dripping with grace. When we read the warning, we go, man, the Old Testament God, he is, look at him. He is just, he's a mean God. Well, no, no. When you read this, you should go, God is so gracious. If God really was holy and just and had no ounce of love and compassion in him, he would have said nothing. He would have said nothing and let judgment and doom fall upon them. So because Jonah hated the Ninevites, he couldn't stand the thought that they would receive God's grace and favor. He runs the other way. He refuses to be an instrument used by God to bless others. And so he goes down to the docks. He tries to run away as far as he can. So verse 3 continues like this. that Jonah went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, if you slow down long enough and you look at verse 3 alone, it's really interesting because the author mentions the city of Tarshish three times. And it's kind of repetitive. And I had to practice this because even saying Tarshish is a tongue twister. Say it three times. You're going to end up saying a bad word or something. If, and so, but why, three, why in one verse does he say he's going to Tarshish, he's going to Tarshish? And I'm not going to say it again, I might slip. But why does he do that? You know, I, I just, as I was reading this, I was thinking, you know, if Jonah was telling this story and he had a sarcastic friend, his friend would definitely go, wait, 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 where was Jonah going again? Why does he make this a point? Why is he driving this point home? Because he is emphasizing, he's highlighting that Jonah is being disobedient. He's not going where God has told him. God is saying Nineveh, but the author keeps drawing your attention. Tarshish, Tarshish. And you're going, oh, Jonah, you idiot. Why are you running the other way? Why are you being disobedient? We, we all do that, right? When we draw our attention to something, highlighting someone's mistakes. Wives, have you ever complained about your husband? If you haven't, then uh, just pretend like you have once. You call them, you say, honey, on the way home from work, can you pick up some dinner rolls? And then they come home, and they have a dozen Kaiser rolls this big. And you're, what do you do? When you tell that story to your girlfriends, how do you tell it? Show John in here. John, let me tell you what John did. You know, when he came back, I asked him for dinner rolls. He came back with Kaiser rolls. I mean, the Kaiser rolls were this big. Can you believe it? Who eats Kaiser rolls for dinner? And you draw the emphasis to the Kaiser rolls. You repeat and you emphasize your husband's mistake, his failure, his lack of common sense. 
Now, where is Jonah going? Tarshish. Can you believe he's going to Tarshish? Why would we go to Tarshish? Didn't God tell him to go to Nineveh? Jonah has received this clear and direct commission from God. But he's very clearly and directly disobeying. Now, again, let's analyze Jonah's heart. What's driving his disobedience? Why doesn't he want to take this message of grace, this message of judgment, to the Ninevites? And it's because he has a self-righteous attitude. His attitude is this. God, I deserve grace, but that pagan, idolatrous city, they don't deserve anything. They are evil and they are wicked. So Jonah is basically saying, God, I know grace is yours to give, but I think you need to rethink this one. God, I think you're making a mistake. I don't want to participate in your error. And so like Pontius Pilate, he washes his hand and he says, let the record show that I disagree. But do you notice the incredible contradiction in that kind of attitude toward grace? To believe that you deserve grace but others don't is to make an actually even bigger statement that you don't understand grace at all. That you don't understand grace at all. You see, here's the problem with Jonah, and it may be a problem that you and I have as well. It's basically, it's an ignorance to two realities. The first is an ignorance to the depth of our own sin. To think that Nineveh or anybody else's sin or failure is worse than mine is actually ignorance to understanding how bad I am, how sinful I actually am. And the second ignorance is related to not understanding or not believing the greater depth of God's grace. That God has never expected anyone to qualify for grace. That he has always meant to give it out freely. And this includes the worst sinners and the worst enemies because this is how deep and how wide God's grace goes. Because here's the thing. It is true. Nineveh is an enemy of God. Nineveh Nineveh is an enemy of God's people. The Assyrians blatantly offended God with their idolatrous worship and their pagan practices. That is all true. But you know what's equally true or even more true? That God reconciles his enemies to himself. That God longs to, he makes it his agenda to turn enemies into friends, just as he turns orphans into his children, just as he turns slaves into those who are free. So Israelite or Ninevite, moral person or murderer, Religious or racist, God's grace is offered to all of us equally the same because we are all equally in desperate need of it. Grace that is given to me freely is wonderful and beautiful. I hope you all understand that, that when you receive grace, that you understand it's beautiful, it's so free, I didn't do anything to earn it. Yes, but if someone comes along and says, and that same grace It's given to those who you think are worse off than you, who are more desperate than you, who are less deserving than you. Then all of a sudden, this beautiful, awesome grace now becomes offensive grace. Wait a minute. The grace that I need is the same grace that that person? We're in the same boat? That's exactly what Jonah was thinking. How? Oh, God is so gracious to Israel. Wait. And Israel's enemy? You see, the audience reading this would think, aren't these enemies worse than us? 
How can we need the same level of grace that they do? And this question, it shows us a severely truncated view of oneself and of God's grace. Because to ever think that, to ever think that, they, that you need a different kind or less grace than someone else, or someone needs more grace than you, is really showing that you are wading in a shallow pool of God's grace when you should be swimming in the ocean of it. How much of God's grace do you really grasp? Do you believe that God is gracious, not just towards sinners like you, but sinners worse than you? Your worst enemy? Do you, do you believe that God is not only gracious toward bad people, but evil people? Even evil people? Do you believe the height and depth of God's grace is measurable? You can measure it, or that it's beyond all measure. Jonah makes us think about these things. He, he teaches us that God delights to give grace to all people, even the worst of them, because we are all equally undeserving. So that's what's going on in the text. The second question is this, though. How does it give gospel hope? How is this a Christian message? Now, it's really tempting to read ourselves as Jonah in the story right away. I'm Jonah. I'm the disobedient one. I'm the one who's run away. It's easy to read yourself as Jonah, but that would be a mistake because when God gave this book to the Israelites, they wouldn't have read themselves as Jonah first. Because Jonah points to another. Jonah foreshadows a better prophet to come, one who was actually willing to take a message of grace to his enemies. So Jonah doesn't point to you, it points to another. So we need to ask the question, okay, well, where are we in the story? How does this story actually fit with me in it? If not Jonah, then who? And it actually makes most sense when you read this story and you identify with Nineveh. Now, that seems strange, but honestly, it's not. You see, because our modern entitled attitudes, we want to see ourselves in this story as people better than we actually are. You know, we all kind of are shaped in one sense by this Disney illusion that, that you know, trains us to think that we are uh, the princes or the princesses uh, and not the ugly and oppressive stepmothers. None of us think that we're them. We're the good guys. We're the heroines. We're the heroes of the story, but we're not. There was a book written called The Narcissism Epidemic. And the authors, Twinge and Campbell, they write something very illuminating, very helpful. And so listen carefully to what they say. They wrote this. Originally, religions could enforce narcissism-reducing practices because they didn't have to compete for adherence. If you were born into a religion, you usually stayed in that religion. Now, however, people can select the religion that works for them, often the one that offers the most benefit with the least pain. To compete, religions have to give people what they want. Because reducing narcissism is not always pleasant, most people are not going to attend churches that demand humility. And if I can add to that, most people are not going to attend churches that tell you that you are the evil, wicked nation in the story. And so he goes on to say, and he quotes, he, he, he talks about one person specifically, and, and I'll talk about it. He says, therefore, you look at the world's, or the biggest church in the United States of America, 
pastored by Joel Osteen, whose message is, you are the best. You are exceptional. You're above average. Feeding into narcissism. Why? Because you need to compete because you want them on your side. And the gospel comes to us, and it gives us an utterly different story. You're reading this, oh, am I Jonah? Am I the one who, who God's going to use even though I'm disobedient? And the Bible comes and says, I'm sorry, friend. You're Nineveh. You're that poor, wicked city over there that is desperately in need of God's grace. You are the city of enemies. And that's actually very consistent with the New Testament because Apostle Paul in Romans 5.10 actually calls us enemies of God. That in our sin... We are rebels against God. So we're not the subject of the story. We're the object of the story. We're the ones who need to receive God's grace. We're the ones who God wants to go after and pursue. So then the question is, how does God come after us? And this is where we need to understand that Jonah is not us, but Jonah is pointing to one that God would send. You see, Jonah 1.1 starts off, the word, of, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. But you know what the gospel says? That the word of the Lord came as the person of Jesus, the son of God. You see, Jonah, he, came, he comes in this story. He doesn't want grace to be made available to some undeserving people. But when Jesus comes, he comes to show grace to all undeserving people. Jonah risked his life by running away to make sure grace would never reach them. But Jesus gave up his life to make sure grace was offered to them. Jonah disobeyed and he fled from God's presence. But Jesus obeyed God and on the cross, God removed his presence. And when Jonah came to the docks, he had a very important decision to make. He could either run away and continue and pay the price and run far from God, or he could turn around, go back home, and obey God. And in the same way, Jesus Christ had a choice at the docks, except for his docks was the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the garden, he had a choice. He could either run away from the cross and logical self-preservation, or he could pay the price with his body and blood so that all who would believe in him would know and experience this incredible grace of God. At the docks, Jonah made a decision. He was selfish because he thought people didn't deserve grace. But at another docks, Jesus Christ made a better decision. He was selfless because he knew we didn't deserve grace. And so although God gives to us the book of Jonah to teach us about grace, he gives to us the person of Jesus to show us grace. Do you know why it's okay? Do you know why I feel comfortable reading this story and identifying with Nineveh? you know why I don't have a problem knowing that I'm symbolized by this wicked city? Because at the end of the day, it's Nineveh who's pursued by God. It's Nineveh who receives the Lord's pursuit, the Lord's thoughts the Lord's grace. It's Nineveh who is wooed by God. And that's who I want to be. Isn't that who you want to be? The one who's pursued. The one who is given, isn't given hope upon. So Paul continues in Romans 5 when he says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. 
You know, there's something really interesting in this story. If you look really carefully, it says here in verse 3, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. Now, what does it say there? He went down to Joppa. Now, that makes sense geographically. Joppa was south of Israel. But then it goes, so he paid the fare and he went down into it. He went down into the ship. Well, that makes sense. The ship is kind of in the water, so you go down to the ship. But the author is doing something more than just literally showing what went down means. There's actually a spiritual meaning because the lowest point of the story, you know what the lowest point of the story is? It's when Jonah is in the belly of the fish. And if you read in Jonah chapter 2, verse 6, he says, The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountain. I went down to the land whose bars enclosed upon me forever. Jonah is, the more he denies grace, the more down and down and down and down he goes, further and further away from the presence of God. What happens in the gospel is when we deny grace and we are on the trajectory of going down and down and down, Jesus Christ lifts us up He brings us into the presence of the Father. How does he do that? Because when he died on the cross, he went down and down and down into the grave. He experienced hell for us so that we would be lifted up into the presence of God. This is grace. God's grace available to you, available to all. And this stands at the heartbeat of the gospel. We, not them, not others, we were the worst of sinners. But through Jesus Christ, God gives us grace. If we believe this grace, what are its implications? What does it mean? So that's our third point. What does this mean for you? There are many things, but I'd like to reflect on just three. The first thing it means is this. God does the pursuing, and you are the pursued. Sit on that for a moment. Really sit on this for a moment. I know sometimes it feels like we're the ones pursuing God. We have to read the Bible. We have to pray. We have to discern his will. We have to come to worship. But everything that we do for God, every way, everything that feels like we're pursuing God is only ever a response because God has pursued after you. How has he done that? He has sent his son to come after you. He has sent his Holy Spirit into your heart. He sends after you. He made the plans before eternity to come get you. He devised the plans to woo you. God pursues after you. Sometimes in the Christian life, we just need to stop and rest and to enjoy being pursued. God pursues after you. Second, is there somebody you need to pursue with grace? Is there somebody in your life who you need to pursue with grace, but who you are refusing to give grace to? You see, only after we understand Jesus Christ fulfills the story, Jesus Christ is the better Jonah, then we can reread the story and understand what it means to us. Because if, like Jonah, we've received much grace from God, who do you need to then pursue with grace? Who do you need to offer that same grace to? Maybe it's the person sitting right next to you. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's an acquaintance. Who do you need to extend that grace to? Is there anybody you consider to be your enemy 
as Jonah did Nineveh. Is there anybody that you've intentionally decided, you've made a decision that you will withhold grace from them? And if I say to you, you need to show them grace, and you say, but they don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. How true is that? You know what? I'll say this. Those may be the truest words ever spoken. They don't deserve it. Amen. But that is not a reason to withhold grace. They don't deserve it is a reason to give grace. Do you know why? Because whenever you say, but they don't deserve it, you know what you have to add? But neither do I. And yet in Christ, I've been shown so much grace. So then how can I ever withhold it? Because you're not showing them your grace. If you're showing them your grace, maybe your grace isn't free. Maybe your grace is expensive. But if God has poured out abundant grace upon you, you are called to show them God's grace. Freely you receive and freely you give. But they don't deserve grace. But neither do I. And the third is this. Grace produces humility. Meditation and reflection on the grace of God is not only deeply soul-satisfying, it is deeply transformative. You see, when you understand grace, when you really believe it, it actually produces in you humility. Because when you say, when we say, God's grace is for all people, yes, even the worst people, In your mind, you don't say, God's grace is for all people. Yes, even the worst people. Yes, even for them. You say, even for me. You humbly confess that you are counted among the worst people. But thanks be to God that he has given to you grace. You see, there's this really famous passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2 where Paul says... I am the chief of sinners. I am the worst of sinners. He humbly confesses. Really, Paul, you're the worst sinner? You want to see your naughty list versus my naughty list? But why is Paul able to confess that he is the worst sinner? You know what he says right above that? Paul writes, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Then he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. How is he able to say that? Because he first confesses the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Grace is the soil of our heart, and that's where humility is implanted in us. From the soil of grace, humility grows and it buds until it matures into the full image of Christ-likeness. Friends, what lesson on grace do we learn from the book of Jonah? That God's grace is for all people. Yes, even for me, the worst of people. Because none of us deserve it. But God chooses to give it. Pray with me. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that you open our eyes and you show us and you teach us that grace is not only about it being free, but it means that it's for all of us, from the worst of us to the best of us, yet 
when we understand grace, the best of us will humbly confess that we are the worst of us. We thank you that this grace comes to us freely. And we thank you that one of the means of grace that you give to us is the Lord's Supper. And we thank you that you invite us to this table and that the meal we eat is free, not because it is cheap, but because you paid the price. Father, so bless us now as we come to the table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Receive the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the love of God the Father Almighty in sending to us the true and better Jonah, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who works grace in our hearts to transform us. May the blessing of the triune God be with God's people both now and forevermore.